On RN, it's time now for this week's edition of Encounter. I'm Jane Jeffs. Well, it's 50 years since any Pope has been made a saint. But next Sunday, Pope Francis will canonise two, Pope John XXIII and Pope John Paul II. This week's programme is an encounter with John XXIII, the last prisoner of the Vatican. In less than five years, John XXIII forced modernisation onto the Catholic Church. He engaged with the world like no Pope before him and became a figure on the 1960s world stage, making headlines like JFK, Martin Luther King and Nikita Khrushchev. Today's programme is produced and presented by Noel Debian. John XXIII was so attractive to my generation when he was elected. Before him, we'd had a very cool, slightly detached Pope. And suddenly we had this sweet little man who seemed to be an Italian peasant. He was accessible. And he made himself accessible. He went to prisons, he went to hospitals, and so things were quite different, and I remember all of that rather well. Yes, he was like a fruit peddler in the north end of Boston, like a grandfather. The truth was he seemed like a big, cuddly uncle, and I was conscious of John XXIII setting up something that I didn't understand the importance of, namely Vatican II. You cannot understand the Second Vatican Council unless you understand the context the long century, more than a century, from the French Revolution up until the eve of Vatican II. Times had changed, and changed pretty radically, and uh, the church needed to take account of this. Pope John XXIII, born Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, and he was a man who recognised times had changed. An Italian peasant, really. As a young priest, he'd been a stretcher-bearer in World War I, plump, a smoker, a social drinker and a charmer, good with people. He went on to serve as a Vatican diplomat in Orthodox Bulgaria, Muslim Turkey and post-Vichy France. At 78, when most of us are dead or retired, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli became Pope. John XXIII, leader of half a billion Catholics from just about every race and language on earth. Expected to be a caretaker, Roncalli surprised everybody. He believed the church needed reform, urgently. Within three months, the new Pope had called a council, the biggest ever in history, Vatican Council II. Pope John XXIII made modern church history when he called an ecumenical council of high-ranking prelates to consider reforms and changes in liturgy. The voice of Pope John XXIII, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia in Latin, Mother Church rejoices, the first words spoken at the Second Vatican Council. When John XXIII announced he was calling a world council, apparently you could have heard a pin drop. Stony silence from all the cardinals there. Not a word the Pope wrote in his diary. It had been nearly a hundred years since the last Vatican Council. The new Pope might have seen the need to modernise. The cardinals feared an out-of-control locomotive. Opening night of the council, October the 11th, 1962, it was under a full moon. He was speaking from the balcony of his third floor suite in the Apostolic Palace. The square was filled. 
Among them, of course, were almost 2,500 bishops. And he had been very cagey leading up to the council because he was opposed by the members of the Roman Curia itself, who were all very conservative. And had they known of his revolutionary intent for the council, they would have tried to thwart him more than they did. But on that night, he he kind of opened his hand like a poker player who finally says, well, I've got four aces here. Here they are. And lay them out on the table. American Time magazine journalist Robert Blair Kaiser, who remembers the council because he was there in Rome. I'm Noel Bean, and this is an encounter with Pope John XXIII. Swiss theologian and priest Hans Küng also attended the council. When I was together with Joseph Ratzinger, the two so-called teenager theologians of the council, because we were very young, I was 35 years old and the council opened. We were both there for the renewal of the Catholic Church, for ecumenism, for opening of the church to the world. And only afterwards we were divided and I would only hope that the younger generation would realize a little more what was done by the Second Vatican Council. American Catholic intellectual George Weigel, later Pope John Paul II's personal biographer, has spent decades understanding the effects of that worldwide council. John the Twenty-Third was very aware of the turbulence that had taken place primarily in Catholic intellectual life, but also in in terms of new patterns of pastoral life in the Catholic Church, the worker priest movement in France, for example, different forms of Catholic action in, in public affairs throughout the world. And what he wanted to do was focus that energy to refine it through the experience of an ecumenical council, which he hoped would be a kind of Pentecostal experience, a rediscovery of the power of the gospel, the power of what Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, an influential theological figure at Vatican II, would call friendship with Jesus Christ at the center of the church. Most popes are conservative. It goes with the DNA. So you have to start from the assumption that he's conservative, but then is he a liberal conservative or a conservative conservative? I would say that he was perfectly capable of having innovative ideas, and he was perfectly capable, above all, of seeing that something was going badly wrong and needed to be addressed. He got that, if you like, instinct. I think from his work for the church during the war and in the post-war years, he was clearly listening in a way that quite a lot of them were not. And he was hearing things that disturbed him and persuaded him that there had to be a pretty fundamental uh, analysis, an audit, if you like, of how the church was performing, particularly in Western Europe. Clifford Longley, lead writer and editorial consultant on the UK's Catholic weekly, The Tablet. Vatican II was in session between 1962 and 65. Australian broadcaster Geraldine Doog was part of the new generation at a Catholic school in Perth. What I got was how it empowered the smart nuns. Looking back, I can remember the sparkling eyes in some of these women. I can see them in my mind right now as they started to sense and passed on to us the sense that somehow or other he was a very different man to Pius XII, even if this wasn't stated. So that whole idea of throwing the windows open, that was definitely there. I took that in. I certainly didn't know what it meant, though. That took years to really come home to me. 
the same age as Geraldine's parents, American Robert Blair Kaiser was a young journalist getting his big break. Providentially, I was hired by Time magazine to cover Vatican II. My editors at Time magazine didn't even know what Vatican II was all about. I kind of took the bull by the horns, and pretty soon I was there covering Vatican II for Time magazine, and I was just a, a young reporter still wet behind the ears. But I had this terrific background, 10 years in a Jesuit seminary, as it were. I made it my business to learn what the council was all about, along with the council fathers themselves who were coming there, and they didn't know what it was all about either. John Twenty-third. I've seen a photo of him at a meeting in Paris, cigarette in one hand, martini in the other, clearly loved people and was a sociable <laughs> person. Now, is, that the, is that the guy you remember? Yes. I remember the day I had an interview with him. I was the only journalist, as far as I knew, who was granted an interview, and it was not even an official interview because they didn't want to break protocol. Post didn't give interviews in those days. In fact, they hardly even give interviews now, except Pope Francis is breaking the mold. But then Cardinal Spellman had set it up a kind of accidental interview for me out at his summer house in Castel Gandolfo. And here comes the Pope kind of bouncing up the hallway and saying to me and my colleague, what a surprise to see you here. Well, it wasn't a surprise at all. It was set up in advance. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be a pro forma meeting, you know, in which he would say, well, I'm going to give you my blessing and I hope you do a good job. No, he wanted to talk about the council and the future of the council. And I kept saying, well, thank you very much, Your Holiness. Uh, I guess it's time to go. And he'd say, no, no. He'd grab my elbow and say, I've got more to talk about. Stick <laughs> around. He was mainly interested in ending the Cold War. This had ostensibly not much to do with the reform of the Roman Catholic Church, which is what the council was supposed to be all about, but it was about making the Catholic Church more relevant to the real world around us, which was caught up in the throes of the Cold War, where we were threatening to blow each other up with nuclear bombs. He guessed these are American journalists, they'll write in time, and it's worth talking about Cuba and the, and the Cold War. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. He knew how influential Time magazine was. And we also kind of hit it off on a personal basis. He he talked about children and how he loved children. And, and he said, how many children do you have? And I said, two. And uh, he said, well, you shouldn't be afraid to have children. And I said, well, my wife and I would like a dozen. Well, he loved that. At first, the council was totally closed to the secular press. And that's the way things were between the church and the media in those days. But Robert Blair Kaiser with a hard-working wife and plenty of Time magazine money behind him, came up with quite a clever strategy on how to get the news and became a world-famous journalist in the process. Well, the council was closed to the press, so I had to figure out cunning ways of getting inside without being inside. So I made friends who were inside and would interview them after they came outside. I started having them over for dinner, and I had sit-down dinners for six or eight of a Sunday night, usually. And one Sunday night, an extra seven people showed up. We didn't have sit-down space for 14 people, so we had a buffet supper. And then a light went on over my head, and I said, why don't we do this every Sunday night? And come one, come all. So pretty soon I was having like 70 of the council fathers and the 
uh, their theologians and some Protestant and Jewish observers showing up for this buffet supper every Sunday night. And they would, the party would go on from about 6 p.m. until 2 a.m. So some of the time the council fathers would take a theologian like Hans Kung back in one of the back bedrooms and they would draft a speech for him. So I was really on the inside and the sweep of the council, all of its ups and downs and crises uh, was kind of part of my life. And it, it happened not only on Sunday nights, but practically every night of the week. I was either taking somebody out to dinner or they were coming over for dinner, and usually more than one. And, and usually people who were at each other's throats, they were arguing in front of me about where they ought to go ne- next, about tactics and strategy. So it was it was just a marvelous opportunity, and I felt like the Holy Ghost was sitting on my shoulder. Who were the characters that stick out in your mind looking back? Who who were the big personalities? Hans Kung was there every Sunday night, and he was usually the last one to leave. And we would end up drinking Rusty Nails together and talking strategy. Uh, Rusty Nail is a half Scotch, half Drambouille on the rocks. And we were young enough to <laughs> handle our liquor then. But uh, along with Hans Kung, there was a whole bunch of Jesuit theologians, there were uh, some terrific bishops like Archbishop Hurley of Durban, South Africa, and Jared Van Velsen of Kronstadt, South Africa, and Jerome de Souza of Nagpur, India. There were a lot of uh, missionary bishops. Uh, Mark McGrath was an American. He was the Bishop of Panama City. So we had a real international cast. The Dutch were the best people at the council. They were the most liberal, the most open, the most ready to think new thoughts and think outside the box. Vatican II wasn't just an event for bishops, theologians, and the media. It would have a real and direct effect on the lives of millions of ordinary people. Changing the Mass from Latin into English, for example, was one of its main outcomes, and that's something that is deeply etched into the memory of a young girl from Western Australia. The Mass in English was truly massive. It's very hard to convey how big that was because it was the, the, the altar turned around uh, towards us and then learning the Mass. Broadcaster Geraldine Doog, now with adult children of her own. She grew up in the 60s and she remembers the ordered Catholic world of the Dugs. Church and Mass and the, was basically at the centre of it. You know, we had a very routine obligation, which was Sunday Mass, followed by usually my grandmother coming to lunch. She was Irish, literally Irish. And mum would go up and would work at the church. We had the priests would visit about once every four to six weeks. Dad was a bit wary of the church. But we debated politics all the time. And the church was just part of it. It was just a given in our lives. I understand Geraldine perfectly well there because I was also born into a Catholic family in the 60s. I went to a Catholic school, and even the seminary for me, it was just for good measure. And it was a secure world, but Vatican II was change, and change created uncertainty. In seminary days, we argued non-stop about Vatican II and its meaning. Hans Kung says that not even the Pope who started it was sure what it would bring. He was open. He had a great deal of experiences, but of course no plan, just his own intuitive actions. Nevertheless, he provoked, of course, the fundamental paradigm change. But this was not a great design. It was just a general idea 
of renewal, of ecumenism, of dialogue. So he was more of a man of intuitive initiatives and not of a planned reform. Suddenly he abandoned some of the practices that we'd been told were critical for being a Catholic. Suddenly he let go of Latin. Now that is mega because it means that each country can develop its own style, its own liturgical practices. And in the light of that, all the constraints unraveled and the church began to feel more popular, more friendly. Lavinia Byrne, who was formerly an English nun. In the USA, American Catholics like little George Weigel's family were also about to experience the huge waves of change set off by Vatican II. I was growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, the historic center of Catholic life in the English colonies of, of the East Coast of North America, the first Catholic diocese in the United States, a place steeped in Catholic history. So I was immersed in this Catholic microculture, which was in fact the dominant culture of the city, as a boy. And my family, my brother, myself, my parents, uh, we were all involved in the life of our parish, lots of Catholic activities. And uh, in the course of that, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we met a newly ordained Australian priest in 1967 named George Pell, who became a very close friend of the family and remains one of my closest friends and colleagues 46 years later. Speaking of our Cardinal Pell, he's been an elector of two popes, of course, and himself a key player in church politics right around the world. Ever since the Council, there's been a fierce struggle over what the Pope and all the bishops really intended back then. Media types like me love simple labels like progressives, who see the Council as a lost opportunity, and conservatives, who thought it was a runaway train heading for the cliff. And of course, it's much more complicated. One book I found tremendously useful came out in 2010, What Happened at Vatican II. It's by Dr. William O'Malley, who also remembers Pope John. Well, I didn't meet Pope John the Twenty-Third, but I happened to be, just by accident, was a very young Jesuit, and uh, was uh, given tickets, actually, to uh, an audience at Castel Gandolfo in July of 1960. And uh, it happened to be the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene. So... We went out there, huge audience, and uh, John twenty third at the end said, I want to say a special word to the women pilgrims present about St. Mary Magdalene and how they should take her as a model. They should imitate her love for Christ. They should imitate her love for prayer. They should imitate her love for penance. Then he put down the paper and looked out and said, but they should not imitate the other things she did. Well, the audience went crazy. I mean, you can imagine whistles... <laughs> foot stomping, pounding of the floor, and so forth. So, And he was up there just absolutely enjoying the joke as much as anybody. So this was a pope with a sense of humour? Very much so. You know, a sense of humour means you see incongruities, and that's a sign of intelligence. Also, he had an experience of the world outside of the clerical world of the Roman Curia, even outside the larger clerical world, that was unique for a pope and unique really for almost any high-level ecclesiastic. After all, he spent really 20 years outside 
of Western Europe, nine years in Bulgaria, a predominantly Orthodox country with a very small minority of Roman Catholics, and then to Istanbul, Turkey, a Muslim country. And we received coldly at both of those places, but gradually, bit by bit, one friendship, and uh, they sort of fell in love with him. So, and then he was there in Istanbul during the time of the Holocaust, and he did help a number of Jews escape. Then he goes to Paris. Oh boy, Paris, 1944. De Gaulle, devout Catholic, but he was on the war path against some of those French bishops whom he thought were collaborators, especially the former nuncio, the nuncio that uh, Roncalli replaced. So he's kind of thrown in the midst of this very sophisticated Western country again, outside of Italy, outside of protection of ecclesiastical clerical structures. So I think that's a big piece of his stance, you know, this, his word attributed to him, aggiornamento, updating. I think he saw that, okay, this stance of the church, the 19th century, especially high-level ecclesiastics, that nothing was good really in the 19th century. For me, the final document of the Council of the Church in the Modern World very much reflects John the Twenty-Third. It's not the church for the modern world. It's not the church against the modern world. It's the church in the modern world. And I think that's what John the Twenty-Third was really aiming at. William O'Malley. George Weigel points out that Pope John was in fact much more traditional than he's often portrayed. John XXIII's personal piety was deeply traditional, indeed rather conventional. If you read his diary published after his death under the title Journal of a Soul, uh, this was a man steeped in the traditional piety of Counter-Reformation Catholicism who had been formed in that world. Uh, but in a slightly different way. And I think that developed in him a broad human sympathy that was there from his formation in his own family, uh, but which was amplified by his experience living among non-Catholics, by his experience of the Second World War, by his experience as a rescuer of Jews during the Holocaust, all of this made for a very different kind of churchman than the conventional Vatican diplomat of that period. Well, the different kind of churchman, Angelo Roncalli, of course, ended up as the Pope in a rapidly changing world. Australia's massive post-war immigration scheme has maintained a white Australia. I have a dream! The 14th Dalai Lama fled in secret across the Himalayas. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. It's one small step for man. The controversy about the film will reach its climax when the Ecumenical Council of the Roman Catholic Church resumes in September. John XXIII gave the church permission to engage, permission to engage with the world, not just to speak with it, but to adapt. Some religious orders adapted pretty quickly. Lavinia Byrne was a teenager in England in the 60s and she was about to become a nun. When I joined the community in 1964, the sisters and everything we do, we ate, we wore, were totally conventional. And so, of course, I wore the full habit, the full veil, 
we ate our meals in silence. But then the Second Vatican Council came along and blew all that out of the window. So we had mass in English and we were invited to become engaged with the problems of our age. I can actually put my finger on an evening when I realised Vatican II was going to make a huge difference to the rest of my life. The sisters filed into their dining room of an evening and instead of standing behind their seats waiting for Latin grace, they sat down and began to talk to each other. (laughs) A funny little memory, but that's how it all clocked over for me. That's when I clocked that Vatican II was kicking in. He was a lot like a like a guy that we now know as Francis. He was uh, a common, ordinary guy. He was just another human being, as far as he was concerned. He used to joke about his infallibility. He would prompt his secretary, Loris Capovilla, to be the straight man, and Capovilla would be standing there and the Pope would look out the window and say, looks like rain today. And Capovilla would say, are you sure about that, Your Holiness? And the Pope would say, well, I'm not infallible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't immortal either, sadly. Pope John was to die of stomach cancer before he could complete the council. And the council could have died with him, could have stopped, but it didn't. John XXIII set the Second Vatican Council in motion and, in a sense, prodded it in a certain direction. But it was Paul VI who really managed the council and led it to a successful conclusion. What I remember about all of that was a great sense of possibility, and I think that sense of possibility mirrored John XXIII's intention for Vatican II. Uh, John XXIII did not intend to deconstruct the Catholic Church. He did not intend to set off a 25-year cat-and-dog fight about who's in charge in the Catholic Church. He intended his council to be a Pentecostal experience that, as he put it in his opening address to the council, would impel throughout the church a new sense of missionary, or as we would say today, evangelical vitality. George Weigel. And that cat-and-dog fight has been long and hard over 50 years. Much of the heat is generated over who has authority, or in Catholic in-house terms, who has the Holy Spirit. The Pope alone? The bishops together with the Pope? Maybe even through... mm, democracy? William O'Malley, author of What Happened at Vatican II. For me, John XXIII's attitude of the Council, once it assembled was, okay, here we have the bishops, they have the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to let them do what needs to be done. As a matter of fact, he intervened only twice. He believes everybody has a little bit of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's not just himself. The church had kind of enclosed itself and shut itself down to new thinking, and the best thing you could say about any theologian was that he was orthodox and that he was saying the same things that his predecessor was saying and that his predecessor was saying and that his predecessor was saying. So they tended to be very self-regarding and they didn't have any creative thoughts. 
in a world that's changing as fast as it was then changing, the church would either have to become a museum or a mission. And the, the leaders of Vatican II, led by Pope John XXIII, wanted to make it more of a mission than a museum. The most critical threat of global war since the surrender of Germany 17 years ago. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace. The Pope and the Cuban leader share a common goal. Before the dark powers of destruction, unleashed by science, engulf all humanity. We know the possible nuclear destruction of the world caught Pope John's attention because he got on Vatican Radio and he spoke about it. Millions of Catholics were behind the communist Iron Curtain. The Soviets built the Berlin Wall in the third year John was Pope. John's response was what he called Ostpolitik, or Eastern policy. He wrote Peace on Earth, Pacem in Terrace in Latin, a letter from the Pope to the world. In it, he changed Catholic policy on communism from total hostility to dialogue. And whatever was happening in the wider world was important conversation in the Perth household where Geraldine Duke grew up. I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis very, very vividly because my father was incredibly interested in Kennedy because he was born the same year as Dad, 1917. And, of course, he was this dazzling Catholic, you know, and, of course, he was... Yeah, he was dazzling. And so we followed that night by night because I was an only child. So I sat with my mother and father. Mum always made a beautiful dinner and we watched the news. Isn't it strange what uh, profession I took up? <laughs> and we would debate it. And so I was acutely conscious of, even in my immature state, of the stakes and the fact that it, look, it was really on the edge. I was frightened. I was genuinely frightened. So very big, that Cuban Missile Crisis. I got a lot of heat from Henry Grunewald, who was the foreign editor of Time magazine. And Grunewald wrote and said to me, you can't tell me the Vatican is changing its position on communism. Well, I said, I can tell you because that's what the Pope is telling me, the current Pope, John Twenty-Third. He knows that communism as an abstraction is not a good thing, but we're not talking about communism as an abstraction. We're talking about real human beings, men and women, fathers and mothers of families who have the same feelings that we have about war and peace and how we don't want war and we want peace. And so let's cooperate with them in every way we can. Let's not make them enemies. And by not making them enemies, he made them friends. He went on to meet Khrushchev's daughter and her husband and kids, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, that was. I remember the day that... Uh, he surprised us all. There was no advance warning, and all of a sudden we got a communique from the Vatican that the Pope had had this marvelous conversation with with uh, Premier Soviet Premier's son-in-law and his daughter, and they left the Vatican with gifts uh, and good feelings, and the Cold War began to melt. melt. I get all choked up when I talk about it. Those were uh, exciting times. The Pope is head of the sovereign Vatican state, which is inside Italy, 
but not part of Italy, and there's bad history between the two states. The Vatican used to be much bigger and called the Papal States. They used to cover most of central Italy, and they brought in a lot of cash. When modern Italy was founded, it grabbed all the Pope's territory. The Pope retreated to what we now know as the Vatican and refused to come out. Prisoner of the Vatican was how the popes had described themselves. Pope John decided to release the prisoner. He took the huge step of catching a train, an Italian train, to Assisi, where St Francis, the patron saint of modern Italy, is buried. William O'Malley. He did change the idea of the Pope as a prisoner of the Vatican in that, just before the council opened, he made a pilgrimage to Loretto and Assisi, right there in Italy. But that's the first time the Pope had left the confines of the Vatican, which includes Castel Gandolfo, since 1870. So this was the first step in breaking down that really voluntary imprisonment. And this was in part a response to to the loss of temporal power, to the loss of the Papal States, wasn't it? Absolutely. One important big factor about in the long 19th century for the papacy was the fact that in 1860, the forces of the Risorgimento, the sources of Italian unity, wanting Italy to be a united nation, really annexed the whole papal state, which was a huge swath of territory in central Italy. Then in 1870, they moved in and occupied the city of Rome. So these had been territories protected by the Holy See and belonging to the Holy See at least since the uh, 8th century. So retreat to the Vatican part of Rome was a protest against this usurpation, really, by illegitimate political forces. So the new Italian government was illegitimate in the eyes of Pius IX. Pius IX, Leo XIII, Pius X, Benedict XV, and then Pius XI in his early years all lived literally within the confines of what we now know as Vatican City. Uh, With the Lateran Treaty of 1929, it became possible for the Pope to travel freely as a sovereign who was subject to no one else's uh, sovereign authority. It was John XXIII who took most advantage of that, although John XXIII revived uh, in his modest way the notion of the Pope as himself a missionary figure. This was picked up on by Paul VI and then, of course, Uh, amplified in a dramatic way by John Paul II, so that the world now expects that the Pope is someone the world will see at home, not simply in Rome. George Weigel. So Pope John was born just 20 years after the Papal States had been seized by a newly unified Italy, but he thought of himself as an Italian, and he'd be the first Pope to embrace the modern Italian state. William T. O'Malley author of What Happened at Vatican II. John XXIII was very much a a man of the new Italy. Uh, He was born after Italian unification. He was born after the fall of Rome. Uh, He was in the Italian army twice. First of all, as a seminarian for about a year, just serving as a conscript. And then World War I, he became a medical orderly and then an actual chaplain. And he'd been outside of Italy for a long time, came back to his home country. So 
1961, Italy celebrated the 100th anniversary of its unification. 1860-61 was when the Papal States fell. John XXIII congratulated the Italian state on its independence and said, now here we are, two sides of the, of the Tiber River, we're friends now. And this was a, a providential happening. It's been good for the church. So that's a pretty powerful statement. Talk about reconciliation with the modern world. There you have one. The wind of change is blowing through this continent. Whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. Liberal democracy is really all there is now. I did but see her passing by, and yet I love her till I die. When John XXIII was elected, Queen Elizabeth II was just 32. Sir Robert Menzies was Australian Prime Minister, and there were quite a few dames around too. Commonwealth countries were still proudly pink on classroom maps. The Catholic Church officially taught that liberal democracy was an American heresy and that the separation of church and state was ill-advised. I suppose it's not that shocking given Indigenous Australians couldn't vote in Commonwealth elections and the White Australia policy was in full force. That was 1958. There's a great line in a 1963 Hollywood film called The Cardinal. The Church thinks in centuries. And from what I learnt and saw in Catholic seminary years ago, the movie line's pretty accurate. Starting Vatican II showed Pope John understood that things had changed profoundly after the two world wars. The world had moved on. William O'Malley. The whole political shift, Republican government, even democracy, was now very much accepted in the West. Monarchy was having a hard time of it. This meant, what about the traditional hierarchical structure of the political order? God-given hierarchical structure. How do you deal with that? So these are some of the problems of modernity that I think the council had to face and did face. That's what I mean by modernity. Pope John did have precedent before him. Not all church teaching was just stuck in the past. An earlier Pope, Leo XIII, at the turn of the century, was radical in his own way. So Pope John just didn't come out of nowhere. Journalist Clifford Longley contributor to the English Catholic publication, The Tablet. Catholic social teaching has raised radical questions in the past, especially with its foundation document, Rerum Novarum, which was extremely outspoken about the abuses and exploitations which had um, harmed large sections of the population in the more industrialised parts of the world and were spreading all over the world so that it wasn't just confined to one particular region. We never heard of Auschwitz until we got there. All the girls, I don't know, we had to stay completely naked like God created us to be tattooed on the left arm. And it wasn't a physical pain, it was a moral pain. You lost all your dignity, all your pride. If you ever saw Bedlam or, or if you could imagine hell, that must have been it. Pope 
Pope John understood where the Holocaust came from. He'd had direct experience in World War II. As Pope, he surprised the world with a gesture towards Roman Jews as they were coming out of synagogue. Hans Kung remembers it well. Yes, because before the Jews were just considered as the damned people, as the people who has killed Jesus, Son of God, who were practically responsible for many evils in the church history. Pope John did not make a big effort to tell the story of the terrible history between the Catholic Church and the Jews, but by his actions he showed Catholics that they have to change. Without him we would not have had a decree on the Jews in the Second Vatican Council. This was also made possible at the beginning by John XXIII. I think uh, he was the decisive figure in all that. A leading Jewish figure on the world stage is Rabbi Sir David Rosen. He helped negotiate full diplomatic relations between the State of Israel and the Vatican. He was also made a papal knight for his work promoting Catholic-Jewish reconciliation. I asked Rabbi Rosen about John XXIII's World War II record. As the representative of the Pope in Turkey, he was one of the first people to hear about what was taking place in Eastern Europe. And together with his Jewish contacts who were giving this information, he sought about doing what he could to save as many people as possible, both directly and indirectly. He had a, a profound influence over the decision of King Boris in Bulgaria, uh, with whom he had had a relationship beforehand in standing up against the Nazis. And he was also able to facilitate at a time when the Nazis were still allowing Jewish baptized Christians, in other words, Jews who'd baptized to Christianity, to escape their clutches in providing false baptismal certificates for them to be able to get away. Pope John XXIII removed the words perfidious Jew or faithless Jew from the Good Friday prayers. How significant was this as an action? It signified this determination on the part of John XXIII to remove all offensive content in the Catholic liturgy in relation to Jews and Judaism. There is a well-known story that after he had instructed this, at St. Peter's at an Easter service, a priest was running through the liturgy and he said the old text, which still had in it this phrase, the perfidious Jew, not out of any malevolence, but simply because that was what he would been used to. And John XXIII stopped the service and insist that the priests go back and recite again that text without the offensive content. So it was a very dramatic gesture indicating where things were going to go. Did the new Jewish-Catholic relationship change Catholic attitudes to other world religions? Professor Lawrence Frizzell of Sacred Heart University in the United States has suggested that it was precisely the transformation in the Catholic-Jewish relationship, in the attitude of the church towards Jews and Judaism that opened up the church to look at its relationship with other religions as a result. So that, in fact, you may say that through this reappraisal, reformulation, if not revolution, in Catholic-Jewish relations, the Catholic Church acquired a new openness and willingness to engage the other religions of the world at large. Rabbi Sir David Rosen... You're on ABC Radio, I'm Noel Debian, and this is an encounter with Pope John XXIII, the last prisoner of the Vatican. Pope John used the Vatican Council to reboot Catholic ideas for the modern world, but he was also trying to improve the balance of power with other bishops internationally. He didn't want rubber stamp bishops. Vatican bureaucrats, however, much preferred rubber stamp bishops who did what they were told. 
saves time. They tried to control the agenda of Vatican II itself, and they had a powerful leader in Cardinal Ottaviani, head of the Holy Office, formerly called the Inquisition. Cardinal Ottaviani intones the orate, asking the people to pray, and then the Veni Creator, invoking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Well, I remember the afternoon interview I had with Cardinal Ottaviani. It was on December the 3rd, 1962. happened to be my birthday. Hard to forget that day. Mm. Um, I had written some negative things about the Holy Office and about him. Pointed out to the world that his coat of arms read, Semper Idem, always the same. I didn't realize then what that meant. Always the same as what? The church historically had been changing all through the centuries, but Cardinal Ottaviani wanted us to think that it was always the same, dating back to the Council of Trent in the 1600s. So after I'd written this negative article about him in Time magazine, his secretary, an American from Brooklyn named John Cosgrove, set me up with an interview with Cardinal Ottaviani so that we could get to know each other and that I wouldn't be so cruel to the Cardinal in the pages of Time magazine. <laughs> in effect, he was pleading for my mercy. So we had this kind of marvelous chat, and I remember the Cardinal was all powdered up. It was like he'd just finished his nap and had maybe been bathed and powdered, and he had this terrific kind of odor. Uh, I call it the odor of sanctity. <laughs> and... <laughs> We got into various deep waters. I got him to admit that he thought that he was above the council. He said, the council fathers can say what they want. After I consider it, we maybe we'll let, let it go and maybe we won't. But it will only, only be after I consider it. So I got him to say that. American journalist Robert Blair Kaiser. And Cardinal Ottaviano wasn't kidding. He was working hard to pull the strings of all the bishops from around the world. Clifford Longley tells the story. When the council started, it was given a whole lot of documents written already for it to endorse. And these were largely drawn up by the various departments of the Curia, which is the civil service commonly called the Vatican. This set of documents was sitting there waiting for them to rubber stamp and they'd all be home by Christmas. An absolutely crucial group of cardinals had already rejected these drafts and said they were intolerable. They wanted, therefore, to assert the right of collegiality, the principle that bishops, by being bishops, are all part of an invisible, enormous college, addressing the fundamental question of what is the right relationship between the centre and the periphery. The very fact they were there saying that represented the change in that relationship between the centre and the periphery. A couple of crucial documents, and particularly the constitution of the church, called Lumen Gentium, that was where this principle of collegiality was enshrined as Catholic doctrine. It remains an unrealized dream, but it, it's still, if you like, the program the Second Vatican Council set in motion. Clifford Longley. Well, history was repeating itself, and it could again, of course. Hans King thinks John XXIII should have been tougher with Cardinal Ottaviani and the Vatican bureaucracy. He missed the opportunity to appoint new cardinals in the spirit of renewal. He just confirmed more or less all cardinals, also in the Secretariat of State, etc., etc. 
he was himself responsible that he had troubles then to have a serious reform with cardinals who were opposed to every reform. I think that was a big difference to Pope Francis. Pope Francis is a good tactician. Pope Francis is a great strategist. He can see how he will reach his goals around the Roman Curia. But John XXIII was rather naive regarding the Roman Curia in many ways. And John XXIII was not a man of the organization. He neglected the Curia. He just made his own intuitive actions. Huge challenges aside, Blessed John XXIII seems to have been the man who wanted to bump the Catholic Church into dazzling 20th century daylight. Unsettled Catholics have described the Council as a runaway locomotive. Baby up with the bathwater is another favourite line. The energy unleashed by Vatican II has buffeted more than a billion Catholics for more than 52 years. Nevertheless, the Church itself celebrates Vatican II as a vital step, just one with serious growing pains. They wouldn't be making John a saint if they thought Vatican II was rubbish. Well, for four shining years, we had a lot of change. The 16 documents of the Council set forth a new charter for the Church to make it more a church of the people and less a church of the clergy. But a funny thing happened on the way to paradise. After Pope John XXIII died, we had a Pope, Paul VI, who was a very fearful man. He was an intellectual, and he understood what the Council was all about. But he was under the thumb of Cardinal Ottaviani. Once the Council Fathers went home, the Curia took over again. I think he was much more interested in trying to marry the world of the church with all its secrecy and its, uh, I don't know, conspiracies with the secular world. He saw the need for change. Basically, it was about modernization, about bringing the church into the 20th century. The women question rode on the tails of that. Whether he intended it or not, he gave women permission to consider that it was worthwhile contributing their particular gifts to the church. Everything that we've been able to achieve in the course of this last 50 years, and certainly with the enormous boost of the papacy of John Paul II, and now even the remarkable relationship in this area of Pope Francis, is all thanks to John XXIII. John XXIII, who knew that the times were changing and that the church had to reimagine its ministry and its mission in these changing times, tried in the Second Vatican Council to create a process that would focus all of those reforming energies. George Weigel. Everyone seems to have an opinion about whether or not Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, Blessed John XXIII, is worthy of being made a saint. Is he? No. Well, you know, <laughs> this whole saint business is a political thing, and it's kind of crazy. It's more of a joke among Catholic liberals that by declaring a man a saint, we say he's in heaven. Well, we think everybody's in heaven. So it's a kind of a PR move to make him a, a saint. Sure, by making him a saint, we make him more of a hero, as it were. 
And if anybody deserves to be a saint, John the Twenty Third deserves to be a saint. I think to have more and more popes canonized is a very bad custom. All this gives the impression that the system wants to have canonized their own representatives. It seems terribly significant that John the Twenty Third and John Paul the Second are being canonized at the same time, because from a Jewish perspective, these are the two great heroes of the. Amazing transformation in Catholic-Jewish relations in our times. On balance, I think that the fact that he was prepared to say, whether he intended it or not, he gave women permission to consider that it was worthwhile contributing their particular gifts to the church. We throw it all up into the air and we reposition this wonderful institution for the modern world. And I'm going to set it in motion, even though I don't know where it goes. Yes, 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 I think I think it's valid. I think John the 23rd was a saint right from word go, long before the church chose to um, canonise him. I mean, in our hearts and imaginations, that good, holy, humble man was a saint. Yes. You've been listening to an encounter with Pope John Twenty-Third. Thank you to producer Noel DeBean and to our production team, Claire Delaney, Tiger Webb, Aviva Ziegler and to technical producer, Lila Schooner. Next week, Noel DeBean will be looking at Pope John Paul II, a celebrity pope for a celebrity age, the most travelled pope in history and another pope very much engaged with the political and social change of his times. That's Encounter, Saturday at 5. Enjoy the rest of this Saturday evening and stay with us here on RN for Away, coming up in just a few moments after the news.